And so with that, let's go ahead and jump into God's Word this morning. We're going to be in Psalm 78. Um, I'm going to invite you to stand with me. We're going to start doing this for the rest of the semester. If you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Um, don't worry, I know you're saying, hey, this is 77 verses long. We're not going to do the entire one here, but... Um, <laughs> So uh, 70, Psalm 78, I was reminded that this is, uh, that this is Hal Habeck, our previous senior pastor's favorite verse. This is the one that kind of spurred on his ministry called Finishing Well, and you're going to see why here in just a minute. Um, here's what it says. I will open my mouth in a parable, and I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of the Lord, but keep his commandments, that they should not be like their father, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast and whose spirit was not faithful to God. The Ephraimites armed with the bow, they turned back on the day of battle, they did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zone. He divided the sea and let them pass through it, and he made the waters stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud, and all the night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to come down and to flow like the rivers. Yet they still sinned. Still more against him, rebelling against the most high God in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food that they craved. They spoke against God, saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread and provide meat for his people? Therefore, when the Lord heard this, he was full of wrath. The fire was kindled against Jacob, and his anger rose against Israel. Because they did not believe in God, and they did not trust and a saving power. I invite you to pray with me. Father, um, I pray that you would meet us here in this place today. God, I pray that faith would arise. I pray that you would bring an increase of faith for every man, woman, and child in this place. That we would learn from our fathers of old. God, that we would have faith, that we would believe you. When you've proven yourself faithful over and over and over again, from generation to generation, God, you've always been faithful. And so, Lord, I pray that you do a work here which you would spur on faith that it would carry over to the next generation, that faith would be spurred on with them too, God. We love you, we praise you, and we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You guys can go ahead and take a seat. How many of you guys got the, uh, brought back your song book this week? We passed out like a, a couple hundred of these things last week. I uh, hope you're using them because there's a lot of other people that wanted them and uh, we ran out. So we got like 150 more that are on back order. They're coming, so uh, you can get those at the table out front. I also included these bookmarks. Um, if you want to grab one of these on the way out, I put the schedule here on the back. And so you want to know which psalms we're doing throughout this whole semester, uh, it's right there. So you can read ahead. Um, these are scripture journals, and so you're encouraged to kind of read along, write the scriptures, and write, write out your prayers a long way. So that's how we're using them there. And so I want to encourage you to do that. Um, about a year and a half ago, I shared with you guys an article I thought was absolutely fascinating. It's from the 2016 Olympics. Um, I was a huge fan of the Olympics back then. Uh, and, and always, I guess, but it was a fascinating year for the Olympics because the U.S. Olympic relay team, the 4x100 team, was supposed to be really, really dominant, but it was a weird year where they almost pretty much blew the entire thing. And you probably, probably remember this, but the women's team has always been just the best of the best. 
Allison Felix that year, there was this blunder there that she accidentally drops the baton in the prelims. You guys remember this one right there? The sure favorites for the gold, and boom, they blew it right there. Uh, fortunately, they were able to, there was a, a bump, and so they were able to do it again, and they were able to come back a little bit later on and, and win the gold medal. But uh, the men's team wasn't as lucky. You remember this one. They were supposed to be the favorites to win the silver medal because that's as well as you can do when you're going up against Usain or Bolt and the Jamaican team and stuff like that. But they were the favorites to win the silver. And, uh, and so you remember this one. They did pretty well. They get to the finals. Uh, however, they still lost to the Jamaicans, and then they, they also lost to the Japanese. And uh, then a little bit later on found out that they, was a, they, they botched the whole thing again with another handoff blunder, and so they were disqualified altogether and didn't even get any kind of a gold. Well, the article went on talking about the Japanese team because, like, that's the big question. How in the world are the Japanese getting these finals? How in the world are they getting so faithful in these races over and over again? Because the Japanese didn't have one person on that 4x100 team that made a sprint final, and they didn't have one person on that team that could run a sub 10-second 100. Right? Meanwhile, the worst person on the American team ran like a 9.83. And so you're kind of going, okay, how in the world are the Japanese dominating this thing so well? And so the author goes on, and, and here's what it says. It says, despite the surprise factor of the Japanese team, their success did not come out of nowhere. It was the result of years of biomechanical data analysis with meticulous attention paid to the baton exchange. The article continued to say that the stats kind of prove its success. It says, since adopting the underhand baton exchange in 2001, uh, the Japanese have been one of the most consistent teams in the world, placing in 10 out of 12 world finals between 2001 and 2016. In comparison, the Jamaicans have uh, placed in nine, and the Americans only six, while being disqualified from two of them simply because they continue to botch the handoff. The point of the matter, church, is that it's, it's all about the handoff is what they figured out. What the Japanese figured out that no one else was really picking up on a whole lot at the time was that all of their hard work and all of their training, all of their post-sub 10-second speed, all of it would count for nothing if they didn't figure out a way for it to make a quick and efficient exchange of the baton from one person to the next. Probably don't need to keep hitting you guys with this over and over again because we talk about it all the time here, but... Church, we've absolutely got a handoff problem going on in the church today. The thing we keep coming back to over and over and over again, but we've absolutely got this handoff problem going on in the church as we try to pass the faith on from one generation to the next. Church, when, when the fastest growing religious designation among 18 to 29-year-olds is the nun category, this rise of the nuns that you hear about all the time, meaning I, I have no religious affiliation um, and when that designation is about 45% of young adults, 18 to 29, are saying, hey, I'm in that category today, and that's about 10% more than any other generation, right? It means that, that we have a handoff problem going on in the church today. I mean, when, when about 65% of people over the age of 65 um, can say, hey, I'm, I'm trying to closely follow Jesus with my life, but that number decreases down to 35% for people between the ages of 35 and 64, and then it moves down even further, down to 15% for people between the ages of 24 and 34. And then it declines even further, down to 5% for people between the ages of 16 and 23. What it means, church, is that there is a handoff problem taking place in the church today. Church, I mean, Barna is saying that we're not even in the same category of what we're talking about and defining as truth today. Um, they did a study where they asked whether or not you agree with the statement, uh, a person can be wrong about something that they sincerely believe is true. Can you just think about that, second, that statement for a second? I, do you believe that that's true? A person can be wrong about something they sincerely believe is true. 
about 85% of the boomers agreed with that statement, and about 65% of Gen Z, which is the younger generation today, um, is agreeing with that statement. In other words, there's a 20% disparity between the two generations taking place there, church. In other words, there's this increasing belief today that all you need for something to be true uh, is a firm conviction that it's true. Like, can you imagine if that were actually true? Right, I guess like, we could make it true if we just believe it hard enough, right? Like, can you imagine if that was how it worked in college, right? Like, uh, prof, I need to challenge my grade on what grounds? Well, I really think I'm right, right? Like, can you imagine if like, like, that's how your grades worked and stuff like that? Like, it's nonsense, right? And what, it's evident, like, there's a handoff problem going on in the church today. It's why the psalmist is going to be so emphatic in this psalm, and he's going to say, no, 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 no. he's going to say, you, you've got to tell the next generation, this is on you. He's going to say, tell them about God's faithfulness. Tell them about the glorious things that he's done. Tell them about his powers and the wonders that he's performed. Tell them about his word and how he established a testimony in Jacob. And he appointed a law in Israel, which, here it is, he commanded our fathers to teach their children. In other words, like he, what he's saying here is like it's on us. There's a handoff problem going on from one generation to the next. We don't get to sit there and say, hey, why aren't you guys picking it up? What he's saying is this is on us. He's commanded us, it's not really this optional thing, I've commanded you to teach this and to make sure that the next generation is going to carry this baton of faith and they're going to pass it on to the generation coming after them and they're going to pass it on to the generation after them. Like it's not this optional thing, this is this mandate that we all carry right here. And I want you to notice like right here, who's he specifically going after here in this text? He's, He's talking about fathers, right? He says that, which he commanded our fathers in order to teach their children. In other words, it's not just the moms that are going to be teaching these things to the kids. It's not just the moms that are going to be there and, and investing in the children and passing on the faith from one generation to the next. He's talking to the dads here saying, Dad, like you too, you need to be involved in this thing too. You need to be investing and teaching and modeling the faith to your children and to your grandchildren or to other people's kids here at the church or to the next generation that you may be living around every single day and don't even know it. Like, Dad, this is your mandate this is your mandate. They don't just need a paycheck from you. That's not the only role that you, that you provide in your family structure. They need your time. They need your attention. They need you to be ready and available when you get home, there at bedtime from time. How are you going to pass on a faith if we're not there? Dads, it's our mandate right here. He's saying that you already pass on a love for sports and finance and, and business and nunchuck skills and whatever else it may be that you're passionate about. Like You know how to pass things on to the, to the kids that you love. This is your mandate, fathers. And so what the psalmist is saying right here, church, like this is on us. As you see things take place out there, there's a responsibility that we all need to own here, recognizing there's a mandate that God has given to every single one of us to be a people that successfully passes the baton of faith from one generation to the next. Fathers, it's on you. Mothers, this is your mandate. Singles. This is your mandate, even though you may not have kids in your life right then and there, to look around at whoever's behind you in this next generation and to say, you know what, this is my mandate to pass on the faith in the next generation. Seniors, your, your kids are gone and they're out of the household, like this is still your mandate. Your grandkids and your great-grandkids, the children who are here at the church, the children that are surrounding you in this community, this is our mandate to keep passing the baton of faith from one generation to the next. I like to call what we're seeing here in the Psalms the show-and-tell model of discipleship, I think. First, you are to show the faith, and then you're to tell people all about it. First, you show it, and then you tell it. It seems like a pretty simple model, but here it is. You can't pass on a faith that you're not willing to live, and you can't pass on a faith that you're not able to teach. 
I mean, so first you've got to live it. First it's got to be real. First it's got to be here. It's got to be a faith that you're practicing and you're living out every single day. And then you've got to teach them about it because either one in isolation doesn't do the trick. You can't have a faith that you talk about and don't live out. And you can't just live out of a faith that you don't bring any structure, any truth to the conversation. I mean, this is the problem that we see play out in Israel over and over and over again. You probably picked up on this in verse 8. It says the reason that he says, tell the next generation, is so that they don't become like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation whose heart was not steadfast and whose spirit wasn't faithful to God. In other words, one of the problems that we're seeing in Israel is that they are, these are a very, very religious people that cognitively care about the things of God. They're a people that are identified by the things of God. However, they're not characterized by the things of God. They are a people that hold a faith that aren't actually passing on the faith. They're passionate about teaching. They may be passionate about telling. They're not so passionate about living it out. And the baton keeps getting dropped from one generation to the next. And so he's saying, tell them, tell them, tell them. Teach them, teach them, teach them so that they don't become the, like their fathers before them. So that this, so that this thing, this, this, this cycle can be broken that's taking place there. They're, they're passionate about the things of God, not so passionate about living them out. And so the whole passage begins with like example after example about how you see this played out in, in Israel. Verse 10, the Ephraimites did not keep God's covenant, he says, but they refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he's shown. Like they were all about it for a little while, but the next day on Monday comes and, and all of a sudden they forgot the faithfulness of God. Verse 35, it says they remembered that God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer, but here it is, they flattered him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him, so they were not faithful to his covenant. In other words, they came to church, like they sang the songs, but there was nothing real Monday through Saturday and stuff. They're not living this out. They flattered him with his tongues. They gave him lip service. Lord, we love you. We believe that you're Lord. And it's not coming out in their day-to-day -day life. Verse 41, it says that they tested him again and again and again. God was faithful to the Israelites in the wilderness. He provided them manna from heaven, meat from heaven, water from rocks. You heard that red. You're kind of going, what is that? He literally provides water from rocks. Miracle after miracle after miracle. And the next week, the Israelites are sitting there going, oh my gosh, we're going we're to die in this wilderness. Does God even see us? Does God even love us? Can he even do anything about our circumstances right here? And they forgot the incredible works of God. Verse 56, they did not keep his testimonies, but instead they turned away and they acted like their fathers did before them. Because here it is, church, you cannot pass on a faith that you're not willing to live. I love the way Beth Moore describes this critical moment in her life. But she talks about this season in her latter 30s, early 40s, when it felt like every sermon, every, every Bible lesson that she was, she was learning about, it just felt like everything that she was listening to was all about faith and belief. And she goes, it was kind of frustrating for me because I, I already believed in God. Like, I was already a believer, right? Like, why are you talking to me about faith all the time? And she's like, I'm, I'm getting frustrated. It seems like everything is saying the exact same thing. She goes, I'm kind of getting bored in this. I'm already a believer. And she goes, finally, it all came to this head when she was reading Oswald Chambers one morning for a devotional, and Oswald had the audacity to talk about faith one more time. And so she goes, well, I just kind of threw my hands up and was like, okay, Lord, what in the world are you trying to teach me in this, in this whole thing? I, I, don't, I already believe in you. I already believe you are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. I've given my life to you. I trust in you for life eternal and all these other things. What in the world are you trying to teach me in this thing? And she goes, it wasn't until I slowed down long enough to listen that I could finally hear the Holy Spirit saying, yeah, yeah, I'm not asking you to believe in me. I'm asking you to start believing me. To not just believe the right things about me, but to start walking by the faith that you say that you believe. 
to believe me enough in order to set you free from the bondage you continue to walk in over and over again, to believe me enough to use you in mighty ways rather than continuing to hide when I've called you to big things, to believe me enough to do exceedingly beyond anything that you can ask or imagine instead of always praying those tiny, safe prayers that you're so comfortable praying. She goes on to talk about, she calls this the stronghold of unbelief that he was breaking apart that day, which is a tactic of the enemy whereby he convinces you who has faith to live by very little of that faith. So for some of us, here it is, the problem that you're having in passing on the faith and successfully passing the baton of faith on from one generation to the next, it may not necessarily be a teaching problem so much as it is a living problem. The problem that you may be having uh, with your friends and neighbors around you, even here, maybe your own children in the home, is not so much the fact that you, you don't talk about it enough. It's that they're not seeing it practiced and they're not seeing it play out in the home. They don't know what you're talking about because they've never seen it put into practice. Church, how in the world are they going to believe in a good and loving Heavenly Father if it's the exact opposite of that at home? How in the world are they going to, how are we going to teach them about the faithfulness of God, how he's faithful from one generation to the next if we're always walking in fear about what's coming tomorrow? How in the world are we going to teach them about his provision if we can't even trust him right now in times of transition when we're kind of wondering, okay, Lord, where's this next paycheck going to come from? How are we going to teach them about faith if we're not living by faith? Church, you cannot pass on a faith that you're not willing to live. Church, how are we going to teach them that he's all-sufficient and all-satisfying if we're more passionate about the Cowboys or the semi-annual Nordstrom sale that's coming around the corner, right? Like, how are we going to teach them about holiness if we're not concerned about our sin or we don't ever repent of anything? How in the world are we going to teach them about forgiveness if we're always holding on to grudges and never giving forgiveness to the people who've hurt us over and over again? How do we teach them about grace if we never get out of our comfort zone to go love people who are different from us? Church, you cannot pass on a faith you're not willing to live. I mean, I, I learned about grace not from hearing a lesson in Sunday school. I learned about grace from taking that lesson I heard in Sunday school and seeing it lived out in my dad all the time. I mean, I'll never forget, church, I, I'll, I'll never forget this, this story. We were, I was probably about seven years old, somewhere in the early elementary days. And my sister was about 10 years older than me, was a very competitive soccer player. She had a soccer tournament out of these fields that happened to be right next door to a massive prison that was nearby. Now, I don't know why you're playing soccer next to a prison yard. It happened, so I don't know why that was the case. But I remember going out there this one time. My dad was the coach of the team. And uh, it was so bizarre because every time my sister's team scored, like the inmates, like they're all in the prison cells. They're overlooking the whole soccer field. They're cheering. They're going, yeah, go Panthers. Go Jim, Jim, Jim. They started chanting my dad's name. And I was like, mom, why are all these inmates chanting dad's name? Like, how do they know dad? Like, what do I not know about his past? Like, what's going on here? Like, it was, it was so bizarre. And I'm like, why are all these inmates so enthused about my dad and what's going on? And mom just starts laughing. And she's like, yeah. She's like, this is where your dad goes every Wednesday. This is where your dad goes every Wednesday. This is what he does. He goes in there and he has relationships with all these guys and he prays with them. And he does a Bible study with them and he's there loving them. And those guys love your dad. He is there faithfully week in and week out. Church, like you don't learn about grace from a lesson. You don't learn about grace from a Sunday school teacher saying, hey, here's what God, you, you learn about it by taking that and then seeing it played out in their family, your people that are all around you every single day. You cannot pass on a faith that you're not willing to live. You understand? Like, church, how in the world are we going to teach, teach our children about the power of God to save if we're not walking in his power and trusting him to save? 
Like how in the world are we going to teach these things to, to, to trust him for bold and audacious things if we don't walk in that kind of a faith? Church, I didn't learn about evangelism by a, a seminary class or something like that. I learned about evangelism by watching my mom in action. Like that was her. I remember I, I've told you these stories before, but we would be sitting in the line at the grocery store checking out. And all of a sudden, she would get this vision of this person that's walking through. And she would say, Aaron, go stop that lady before she walks out that door. I need to pray with her. And I'm going, this is weird, Mom. No, like, what are we? And she's like, stop, go, go talk, stop her right now while she's, like, wrapping up the groceries and stuff. And so I'd run out there, and I'd be like, ma'am, I'm sorry. Like, I, I know you don't know me. My mom really needs to talk with you. I think she wants to pray with you. And they're like, what? I'm like, just, just hang, can you hang tight for a second? And I'm not kidding you, like over and over again, minutes later, that woman is in tears. My mom is praying with that person. Church, I can't tell you how many times over the years as a grown adult, we've been in the community and we've seen different people and random strangers have come up and they've seen me with the parents and they said, hey, you need to know my life changed when your mom went out of her way and introduced me to Bible study fellowship and offered to pray with me that day, this stranger, wherever it was that we interacted. That happened so many times, I can't even imagine. You don't learn about the power of God to save from a book. You learn it by seeing it played out in the home, by seeing it played out with your teachers that are all around you, by saying, hey, come and walk with me. You don't know how to study scripture, come and learn with me. You don't know how to, how to pray big prayers, come and learn with me. You don't know how to share the gospel, come and learn with me. You don't know how to love the poor, care for the needy. Come, let's go, let's go serve together. You cannot pass on a faith that you're not willing to live. You just can't do it. I mean, the Israelites tried and it didn't work out well. We've got the entirety of history to fall back on and to say this hypocritical religious practice, it doesn't work. It's no wonder that we're seeing the stats play out the way that they are today. You can't pass on a faith that we're not willing to live. Or how are we going to teach our children about the generosity of God if you're not generous? If we don't engage in things like the community giveaway saying, here's our stuff. We don't care about it. We know that it can help you. We want to give it to you. And we're not going to charge you for it. Or these community grants saying, because we love you. We just love you. We care about what's going on in your school or in this, in this area of brokenness over here. We love you. It's a gift. How are they going to learn about generosity if they're not seeing it play it out over and over again? How are they going to learn about love if we're not a loving people? And you've got to hear me on this. I'm not just talking about parents and the kids as long as they're in the home. Like this is the biblical mandate for every single man and woman in this room, whether you're married, whether you're retired, you're a senior, you're younger, you've got kids, you don't have kids. This is the mandate for every single one of us. I'm thinking of, um, by the way, can I just say, our seniors have led so well here in this church. Our seniors are awesome, by the way. This past week, I want to honor Linda Cole and Jack Cole and Dick Simmons, and I'm seeing you, Ellie, back there. I'm going to get to you in a little bit. Uh, uh, the Hesses, I'm thinking of the Hesses. I'm thinking of our seniors leading the way here. I'm thinking of Hal Hobbecker, our previous senior pastor, who laid this foundation and said, this is, this is my ministry as I retire from this place, 65 plus, this ministry of finishing well. This is the legacy that's been left behind. Our seniors are showing it done, saying, you know what? We don't have the littles in our home anymore. That doesn't keep us from the mission of God. We're gonna keep pouring in no matter where we go. I'm thinking of Linda and Jack Cole and Dick Simmons because I heard the story of this past week. Uh, the week before, they gathered a group of people and invited about 30 international students from UTD into their home. Hindu culture, non-believers, none of them were. None of them had any experience in America, much less Christianity. And they just invited them into their home. And I love this story. Linda just says, she's telling her story to all these students that are there. And she goes, I've got, uh, I've got 22 grandkids and I've got 26 uh, 
22 grandkids and 26 great-grandkids. And I want you guys here to all know that you're, I consider you family. My home is your home. And she opens up their home and invites these students in. Dick Simmons, also retired, comes and he shares his testimony. This is how God got a hold of my life. If you would let us, we would love to walk you through this. We'd love to teach you and show you the ropes. We'd love to do this life with you. Church, it doesn't matter if you've got fours and fives in your home. It doesn't matter which age and stage that you find yourself in. This is the mission that's been given to every single one of us. Praise God, like how are they gonna learn about a God who loves them unless they see and experience love? Church, you cannot pass on a faith that you're not willing to live. I mean, that is the story of, of, of Psalms. And so like that's where you begin, the show and tell model of discipleship. First you show it, and then, of course, the second part is you got to tell about it. you got to explain what's going on here. Why do I love so well? Why am I generous? Why do we do the different things that we do? we got to be able to teach these things. I mean, this is the mission of God. Remember, Jesus says, I want you to go into all the world, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the evangelism part of the mission of God, which is why we're evangelical. We believe in passing on the faith. But then I want you to teach. Teach them to observe everything that I've commanded you to teach, to, to, to know. It's the second part of the Great Commission, church. It's, it's all of our mandate. And before you and I start freaking out about, uh, freaking out about teaching, saying, hey, uh, I didn't get my master's in teaching. I didn't go to seminary. I don't have all of my questions figured out. I don't know. I'm not a teacher. I didn't do that for a profession. I can't really teach. We've we got to understand, church, every single one of us are capable of teaching. We do it all the time. You teach the things that you know, and you teach the things that you're passionate about. If you had kids, you taught your kids how to tie their shoes. You taught them how to... Um, you know, go to the bathroom. You taught them how to eat their food. You taught them how to make their bed, how to clean their room. Uh, you taught them how to ride a bike. You taught them how to do math, uh, probably math and, uh, you know, or addition and subtraction, not the bigger stuff, but, you know, uh, you, you, you taught them things. You, you know how to teach them things. You know how to teach them about your favorite football team. You know how to teach them about business. You know how to teach them about bow hunting and how to clean a, a, a whatever you clean. I don't know. Uh, you know how to teach them about the things that you're passionate about. Like that's innate inside of every single one of us. You know how to communicate the things that you know. You know how to communicate the things that you're passionate about, which may be part of the problem that we're seeing today. Church, you can't pass on a faith that you haven't learned, and you can't pass on a faith that you're not willing to keep learning and growing in. Like you can't pass on a faith that you don't have and that you're not willing to teach. I mean... When 88% when of Americans own a Bible, 80% even believe that it's sacred, less than 7% will actually open it up in a given week to read it on their own apart from a Sunday morning worship service. I mean, it, it's a large part of the problem that we're seeing here, right? You cannot pass on a faith that you're not willing to learn. And you cannot pass on a faith that you're unwilling, incapable of teaching. I mean, it's how you get to the point where we are culturally today. We're still somewhere between 60 to 65% of our country acknowledges faith in Jesus. They identify as a Christian. Nevertheless, the majority of believers today believe many religions can lead to eternal life. There is no one true religion. 58% of teenagers believe that. 62% of young adults believe that statement. There is, many religions can lead to eternal life. There is no one true religion. In other words, church, we love the Bible. We even believe that it's actually from God. Yet many of us don't even believe some of the most basic tenets of our faith. John chapter 14, 6, Jesus is abundantly clear. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Like, no one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, church, like, there aren't multiple ways. It's not a, hey, whatever you want to think in your mind works and everything's fine and everything's wonderful there. Like, no one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus says. That is the message that God, Jesus, crucified. 
Uh, Romans is going to talk about it like this. He's going to explain what's going on. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, he says in Romans 3.23, but here it is. We are all freely justified, meaning you've been declared righteous before a holy God. How? How? Not any way that you want, whatever you want to make up in your mind. Everything's fine. Everything's good. He says, by his grace, you've been justified through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Jesus Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of blood in order to be, re to be received by faith. In other words, church, like his life, death, and resurrection had accomplished something. Like it wasn't arbitrary. It wasn't an example of love. It accomplished something. It solved a problem that all of us had. We were all sinners. We were all lost and dead in our sin. And in the middle of that place, God in his infinite love still loved you and me so much so that he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to come and live the holy life we could not live. And he went to the cross and he died a substitutionary death for all of us that we may be able to have eternal life. In other words, he did all that, that we could be freely justified by his grace. It wasn't just this example of love. And church, it's all right here. And we're missing some of the most basic tenets of the faith because we're not teaching the faith. We're not passing it on from one generation to the next. We've stopped telling the truth. Church, we've got to understand, we've been saying this a lot while, like, there's a battle that is going on, a very, very real battle. There's a real spiritual war that takes place every single day that you and I can't see or always discern in our own eyes. But there's a very real enemy that wants to crush and destroy not only your faith, but your children's faith and the next generation's faith. And he is attacking them with these flaming arrows all the time that we cannot always see. But he knows exactly what he's doing. I mean, church, think about this. Every single day, if tomorrow's a normal day, we're going to wake up. And we're going to be subjected to between, somewhere between three to 5,000 different advertising messages in any given day. Targeted messages that are all saying, no matter what you have, no matter how much you've been generously gifted or earned or whatever it may be, you still need more because this is not enough. Every single day, three to 5,000 different messages subtly coming in and, and saying that exact same thing. By the time we graduate high school, we'll have been in 15,000 hours of school where you and I are only graded on your ability to perform. Do you think that that might have any impact on the way, on your ability to understand grace? This doctrine where we believe that we are approved unto God and uh, not on the basis of anything that we've done or our ability to perform, but solely on the basis of grace. Do you think that that might have any impact into our ability to, 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 to grab onto that doctrine? I mean, church, just think about the number of different arrows. I'm calling them flaming arrows because that is the tactic of the enemy. Think of the different things that we feed on every single day. We're going to come home, and if it's an average day, we're going to have the TV on for about five hours a day. Let me ask you this. Is Hollywood pro-God or not? Is it possible that some of the things that we watch and we are, we are subjected to every single day may be contrary to the things of God sometimes? The Internet. We're going to be on the Internet eight hours a day. Is it, only, is it only useful information and networking and harmless entertainment? Are you kidding? I mean, I mean, I was reading an article from the UCLA Brain Mapping Center. Check this out. Here's what they said. When teens get a lot of likes on Instagram or Facebook, their brains respond in a similar way to seeing a loved one or winning lots of money. In other words, we are looking at their brains, studying their brains, and we are seeing this composition take place. We are seeing identities shaped uh, physically, we're seeing these things take place. It's not the same thing with older adults whose identities may be more intact and they may be, may be more confident about who they are. So this mapping center is saying, hey, we can see a physical difference taking place simply by saying, hey, you know what? Everybody likes me. 
Everybody likes this picture. Everybody thinks it's great. Everybody's in agreement with these different things, and it is shaping the way that we think about ourselves. The article continued to go on. By the way, hold on. I'm not saying get rid of Instagram. It's the devil. Run away. Go get on a commune or something like that. Um, Here's what it says. It says, Instagram especially draws young women into a comparison trap against unrealistic, largely curated, filtered and photoshopped versions of reality. Instagram easily makes girls and women feel as if their bodies are not good enough as people add filters and edit their pictures in order for them to look perfect. Port of the matter, churches, it's not harmless. It's not always always neutral ground that we're feeding from every single day. Nearly 93% of boys, 62% of girls are introduced to pornography by by the time that they're 18. That's a lot. And we're going to sit here thinking, okay, it's harmless because everybody does it. This is so normative in our culture today. Like, why even think twice about it? Everyone does it. No big deal. Meanwhile, secular articles, secular magazines like Time Magazine are all saying, hey, you know what? We've done the research now. It's not neutral. It's actually harming our ability to have normal interactions with people of the opposite sex. It's harming relationships and our ability to, to think mutually about each, about each other, to serve one another, to care for one another. It's actually doubling the chances of divorce, and it's tripling the odds of marital infidelity. In other words, church, like, it's not harmless. It's not harmless, right? Okay, so what's the solution to all of this? It, I mean, is, it, is that it? We buy a farm in Idaho and go be Amish or something like that? Like, it's not what the psalmist is saying. The solution is that the older generation, you and me, is that we take the baton of faith and we teach it to the next generation. And that we prayerfully are able to discern where these flaming, these flaming arrows of the enemy are trying to kill and destroy that which is beautiful and awesome. And we're going to get ahead of these things. And we're not just going to tell them to, hey, obey these, these commands about purity just for the sake of doing it. We're going to teach them the why behind it. We're going to come behind them. We're going to listen to the different things that are going on with the next generation. We're not going to get defensive about it. We're going to meet them wherever they are, and we're going to teach them the things of God, not just what they are, but why they actually are, the entirety of God's word. We're going to teach them and explain to them, and we're going to be patient all along the way. Church, what we don't understand is like everything we need for life and for joy and for faith and for godliness is right here in God's word. I mean, Genesis is going to say every single man, woman, and child has been given inherent dignity and value as an image bearer of God. I mean, John's going to say, uh, if you, um, it's going to say as many as have received unto them, he's given the right to be called a child of God. Church, like that's who you are. It's your identity. This is who you are, right? Like do you think that your children, do you think that your sons and your daughters may need to understand that? That they're not defined by the bullies that are online. And they're not defined by the things that they're feeling in this comparison trap of social media. They're not defined by what their friends are are, are defining themselves by. They're not defined by what people are saying about them. They are defined by the King of all kings and by the Lord of all lords. And he is saying, if you profess faith in him, then you've been given the right to be called a child of God. You are a son or daughter of the king, infinitely loved by him. You've been given inherent dignity and value as an image bearer of God. Do you think the next generation needs to know that a little bit more? Church, I mean, it's all right here. Church, Dad, what about my purpose? Do I have any value in this world? What am I supposed to bring to the table? Church, yes, you are his workmanship, son. What you don't understand about yourself is he thought about you when you were in your mother's womb. He numbered the hairs upon your head. You are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, for the purpose of doing good works, which he's already prepared in advance for you to walk in. You are a valuable member of the body of Christ, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, You have been uniquely brought into this body, 
and how God has uniquely wired you is essential for the flourishing of this body of believers? Do you think that your sons and daughters need to understand that God has created them on purpose and their unique gifts and talents and abilities are essential for the flourishing of this body? It's all right here in God's word. It's all right here in God's word, but you can't pass on a faith that you haven't learned. And we can't pass on a faith that we're, we're not willing to keep learning day by day by day. And we can't pass on a faith that we're not willing to teach anymore. Like, Dad, is this thing that I hate about myself, is it ever going to change? Am I stuck like this the rest of my life? Yeah. The Word says in Galatians, if you surrender to the Holy Spirit over time, he's going to produce his life in you. Things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. In other words, you're not stuck where you are. Your marriage isn't doomed just because it's terrible right now. As you surrender to the Holy Spirit, he will produce his life in you and set you free from the bondage, from bondage and addiction. He will produce things like love and joy and peace and patience. Do you think that your students need to hear this? And what I'm saying, church, is it's all right here. He's given it to us in his word. But again, you can't pass on a faith that you haven't learned. And you can't pass on a faith you're not willing to teach. And you can't pass on a faith that you're not willing to live. Why the psalmist is so emphatic, saying, tell the next generation about his faithfulness. Tell them the glorious things that he's done. Tell them about his power, the wonders that he's performed. Tell them about his word. as he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel that their hope may be in God once again and that they can faithfully keep his commands. Church, may we never, ever, ever stop teaching and living out the truth of God's word for this next generation. There may be obstacles out there, but I hope and pray that it's not coming because we're Israel and we keep trying to talk about the faith and we're not willing to live it. Praise God this past week that has made this list. There's just all the different ways that I'm seeing this play out here at Dallas Bible Church. And can I just tell you, like it filled up like an entire sheet of like stories after stories after stories of parents, people in our church body that are doing this well, singles, seniors, it doesn't matter which stage of life that you're in, just passing on the faith faithfully from one generation to the next. I praise God and honor my own parents because they did this well. I stand before and just sit here and just say, thank you, parents. Like I was that kid, woke up at 6 a.m. for school, and like mom was already in her study praying and read, devouring God's word. Like I've shared this a lot. I get up in the middle of the night, and over and over and over again, I come downstairs. Dad's in the dining room in the middle of the night, blanket over the head, candle on the table, and I'm listening to him pray by name for his kids. Like what do you think that does to somebody? Like you're not performing. You're not performing. No one else is around. And I'm sitting there going, this is real. This is real. Like at night, we sat there, and the intentionality was just, I hated it at the time. And you got to understand this. Your kids are going to hate it at the time, right? But, like, but every single night, didn't matter what we were doing, we would come back. And at the end of dinner, not every single night, a majority of nights, a lot of nights, maybe I should say it like that, we would come at the end of the dinner table, and they'd just bring out the Bible and say, okay, Aaron, it's your time. Read a couple of these verses. All they did, read this. What do you think it means? What do you think it means? And they just asked a few questions. And we would just talk about it. And they'd read it at night before we went to bed. We became teenagers and we'd have like, friends over at our house. And I hated this because friends would be over there and it didn't matter. Billy's over at their table and they're going, Billy, we want you to read the passage tonight. And Billy's like, I don't even read this kind of thing. But they're like, it doesn't matter, read it. What do you think it means? And they're just, just passing, passing, passing. Take the torch, take the torch, take the torch. Take it, don't drop it. 
one of my favorite stories would come back after college and I'm hanging out with some of my friends and they just said, you know what, we used to love coming over to your, your, parent, your house and spending the night there as, a, as, as kids. Your parents would make us do those Bible studies and, and they, would just say, they would just talk about that at the table and they're like, man, we loved hearing that thing. Church, praise God for the families that are doing that. Praise God for the people like Ellie Langston who is looking around saying, you know what, my kids are out of the home, but I'm not retired. I'm not retired. I haven't moved past this mandate to keep passing on the faith from one generation to the next. I'm going I'm to serve the kids in the surrounding apartment complex right over there. And I'm going to keep passing on the faith from one generation to the next. Thank you for the Linda Coles, the Jack Coles, the Dick Simmons. And thank you for the Hesses that keep doing this all the stinking time. Reaching out to the next generation, wherever that may be. Maybe it's in their home. Maybe it's here in these hallways. I'm thinking of the Brittany Zigglers. I'm thinking of the Connie Simmons, right? The, the, the Ellens, right? Who, who've been teaching these classes for 25 years. Their kids are out of the home now. It's not their own. They're faithfully serving our children's ministry over and over and over again because they know that the mandate has not ended when those kids have graduated from the home. Church, may we never, ever, ever stop passing on the faith from one generation to the next. I'll tell you right now, we had 405 kids come last week. By the way, that's, that's like birth through fifth grade. Our previous high was a week earlier at 301. Before that, it was like 260 or something like that. <laughs> Sometime in the past year. Um, a few years back, it was 75. Um, so, yeah, there's opportunity. <laughs> there's opportunity. I'm going to invite you to pray with me because we're looking at these psalms and we're saying, okay, what are you saying to us and how do we pray in response? The word that keeps coming to mind is increase, increase. And here's what it means. Increase my faith. Increase my understanding, oh God, that it would lead to an increase of faith for the next generation. I'm going to invite you to pray that with me as we go to the Lord's table together. Father.